Welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. M, and this is podcast number 48. This week's guest is an expert in the prevention of maternal pregnancy-related metabolic disease and the downstream risks of metabolic dysfunction if left unchecked in a woman or mother. Her name is Dr. Leslie Stone. Her bio reads, Leslie Stone, MD, is a board-certified family practitioner with a fellowship training in surgical obstetrics. She is an international lecturer on developmental programming of health and disease and application of individualized functional medicine care during pregnancy. Her passion is helping parents capture the miraculous before and during pregnancy by changing habits, their lives, and empowering lifelong resilience in their children and their children's children. She is a co-founder with Emily Ridbaum, certified nutritionist, of GrowBabyHealth.com, an individualized nutrition and lifestyle program promoting generational health, and she is a chief medical officer for GrowBabyLifeProject.org. She has been delivering babies since 1982 and has delivered over 5,000 children. She is owner of Ashland Comprehensive Family Medicine, Stone Medical in Ashland, Oregon, where she continues to practice medicine. Her ongoing clinical research centers on combining developmental programming of health and functional medicine applied preconceptually and during pregnancy to optimize maternal and neonatal outcomes with the intention of reducing the global epidemic of non-communicable disease. They are currently in clinical trials. Her undergraduate degree was from Washington State University in psychological psychiatry and was followed by her MD from the University of Washington her internship in OBGYN, obstetrics and gynecology at the Oregon Health Sciences University, and residency at UCLA in family medicine, and a surgical obstetric fellowship at UCLA Ventura, and then further certification in the functional medicine realm with the Institute for Functional Medicine. For me, this is a really exciting conversation because, as you all know, I love to understand the upstream reasons why we have disease in the first place, sort of the anthropologic understanding of where things are going sideways. Many, For many years now, I've been talking about the autism epidemic and different dysfunctional neurodiversity problems of childhood, and that the genesis of such disorders is far upstream of birth. And Dr. Stone is a leader in the space of understanding how this is actually happening. And how can we mitigate this risk through decisions related to lifestyle management around diet and stress, but also looking specifically at the genes and in what we call single nucleotide polymorphisms, that there are slight variations in our genetic makeup that put us at increased risk or less risk of micronutrient deficiencies, macronutrient utilization concerns, and, and the like that then could lead to a defect in embryogenesis or the production of a human fetus in utero. And this is critical for a society to maintain its sense of health self and then to allow these children to be born healthful and to live a full life with a full life health span. So we're going to get deep into the weeds on her project, her work, her team's work around how we can limit the upstream risks of disease by looking at a maternal health paradigm around understanding the genomics, understanding 
what we can mitigate and change through lifestyle factors, and then what are the outcomes? And their data is fantastic. And for me, this is a opening into what the future of medicine should look like if we are going to slow the trend of autism and autism spectrum disorders and ADHD and all the like. I think it's all combined. When I was born, autism was roughly 1 in 10,000. Now, depending on the study you read, it's 1 in 40 or even 1 in 25, some are saying in California. So this is a big deal. How do we go about understanding what's happening upstream, what's changeable, and then what can we do in regard to having the best outcomes possible for human health? So we get into a lot of the understandings of this question, this conundrum that has been facing the United States for the better part of three decades. And Dr. Stone and her team have done amazing work trying to answer these questions and give us a a baseline understanding of the reality of epigenetics, what I call Lamarckian theory versus straight Darwinian theory, right? So Darwin is like survival of the fittest. If you're not fit, you're going to die. But Lamarck had a better idea that maybe we do alter ourselves over time. And that is really the epigenome. And in this world, as we've talked about many times in this podcast, understanding the epigenome and these single nucleotide polymorphisms and what we can modify really helps us understand human health and disease. So with that, let's get into this conversation with Dr. Leslie Stone. Well, hello and good day, Dr. Leslie Stone. It is an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. So welcome. Glad to be here. Grateful. So I am very excited to have this hour with you talking about your work and primarily really trying to get into the understandings of the upstream reasons as to why you chose the pathway you did to help mothers and then their F1 or their children generation to see what beneficial outcomes they can have based on targeting what we consider in functional medicine, the upstream targets, the antecedent risk factors for disease. So as we head down that discussion over the next hour, and you know me and my anthropologic bend, I'd love to head that way too. I would love you to introduce yourself to the to the to the folks as to who you are and why you chose to go down this road in the OB landscape. Well, I'd be I'm again I'm grateful to be here and happy to start out this discussion with what brought me here. So um, as, a, as a physician, I started my work thinking I actually wanted to be a neuroscientist, <laughs> but realizing this incredible need in this perinatal time period, the maternal health and, and juxtaposition with the pediatric health just became overwhelming. The, the demand from the female population um, turned my sights here and I've never looked back. So in the process of this education, I found though, and, and learning to do become very good at, at um, being able to manage obstetrics and continue on with that pediatric population, I found that our, the, the, the morbidities, the bad things that are happening during pregnancy, and first starting there, that those were not changing, despite what I thought of myself as giving excellent care. And I actually thought that that care was you know, nationally present. But then you start looking uh, at how how is this, how are our standards changing here in the U.S. and how do they compare to what's happening globally? And we find that that perhaps what's happening is our own environment is not allowing us to optimize these these issues, these um, um, outcomes in pregnancy. So, so it we worked very hard initially 
integrating functional medicine, the concepts of functional medicine into trying to find nutrition and lifestyle, these upstream antecedent um, changes and make them uh, one by one, integrate them into uh, a pregnancy population, a pregnancy program. And we found that we've added magnesium, thinking that we could be able to get rid of preeclampsia, we could get rid of preterm labor, we could do these sorts of things, small for gestational age. And we found that no, that didn't work. And then we um, tried adding, so then we looked around at this concept of systems and realized that we probably would have to add more than one thing at once. And so then we started adding in a few other micronutrients and realized that that was probably gonna give us more leverage. There was more uh, evidence out there as well. But about that same time, which would be 2009, I heard a lecture from, from David Barker in the basement of our local Rogue Hospital here in the Rogue Valley. And he suddenly expanded the import of why it is that we have to get maternal health right. We have to get that not just in the preconception time period, well, not just in the pregnancy time period, but in the preconception time period as well. Because as he discovered through his historical analysis of the, you know, the famine in the Netherlands back in 1944, that those persons, even trimester by trimester by trimester, had a profound impact on what the health of those individuals would be, of the F1 generation would be, if they, uh, by the time they entered 65. And we found that that was their increased risks of absolutely everything was trimester dependent on when the starvation or the lack of micronutrients or the increased levels of stress, well, those seem to be the two factors that were most prominently uh, involved. And they found, and they found that that ran the gamut from hypertension and diabetes metabolic syndrome to cancer susceptibilities to allergies, asthma, immune dis autoimmune disorders, to neurologic disorders, dementia, um, psychological disorders. It ran the gamut, endocrine disruptions, the whole thing. And suddenly what happened in the preconception time period in that first, second, and third trimesters, and even in the postpartum time period became crucial to understand no longer, and it gave me an, a, a construct for understanding this epidemic of global disease that we now have, this global, yeah, of, of, of dis-ease, right? Yeah. So, What yeah. year was that, roughly? 2009. Okay. So it was at that point we went, okay, let's put, let's put these concepts together. So at that time, that was all retrospective data, right? So it was epidemiology, compelling. Well, since that time, that was about 1985 that he he and Rosenblum and you know Lamarck, they were all publishing at that time. And they and it's from then that everybody jumped on the wagon and we have prospective data now for the next last 35, 40 years that confirm every last living concept that he proposed. Right. As a matter, and I, they proposed, I should and say. I, and I think it's super fascinating because you're pulling on two different levers. You're pulling on the evolutionary funnel level and you're pulling on the now epigenetic lever. So we know throughout history, humans and other species on the planet have been able to survive based on 
sort of Darwinian theory where certain species um, groups die out because their genes aren't capable or the non-thrifty genes of keeping them alive. That's one subset, but you're now talking to a very new group that Randy Journal picked on, which is the epigenetic feeling where, hey, this starvation period induced a set of genes to ch not change the DNA code, but to change their upstream target saying, hey, let's turn this gene on which says you are more likely to hold on to cholesterol. You are more likely to preserve sugar. You are more likely to preserve blood pressure. All of these things then in a, in a starvation environment would be beneficial. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. oh, by the way, if you fast forward into a modern environment, they become detrimental. And so your work now in your study, and I want to get sort of granular on this when you're ready in Grow Babies, you said, okay, we have historical data that says in the past, now let's start looking how our intervention can come to pass and how did you choose the cofactors you decided? I, I love cofactors as Bonnie Kaplan calls them instead of micronutrients and, and, and the macro side of this too, what led you to build the program as you did, as it's written in the first paper and now your, your later work? Well, I think our next, uh, you mentioned the name of Randy Jurdle and I'll start there. So his, his, we experienced him in the 2014 IFM, uh, uh, AIC and found, and he came up to us afterwards because we presented this early work at that, a, a case presentation where we found that we could take a pre, uh, a patient with a two time history of severe preeclampsia and babes who ended up with um, being small for gestational age who subsequently went on to become uh, attention deficit disorder and autism spectrum disorder. Um, offspring, how we could take that pregnancy in the middle of the first trimester, in the end of the first trimester, and create an entirely neutral environment for that delivery, as it turns out, right. and subsequent longitudinal development. So it was that point that we realized it's not just the um, you know manipulation, the post-transcriptional manipulation of of our environments. It is potentially pre-transcriptional, epigenetic right. as well. And so it was that aha that made us go, well, then maybe we should look at, we, we were willing to accept that nutrition was probably the language, the biochemical language of, of our bodies. And within that, that also, since, since nutrition has its charge, is electrical charge, it's probably electrochemical nutritional language of the body. And so if that's the case, then maybe we should start where those first cofactors might be or those first micronutrients might be crucial um, in, in the pre and post-transcriptional worlds. You know, not ignore them, join them, you know, put them together. And is there any overlap between those? Well, lo and behold, another journal book, a nutrigenomics journal book, you know, he described how common cofactors for histone modification for, for chromatin, you know, manipulation also exist remarkably repetitively in um, as we go down to, um, you know, acetylation, ubiquination, all these different biochemical pathways that not only manipulate methylation, that not only manipulate the ability to open or close chromatin, and so therefore change in a pre transcriptional manner the vulnerabilities of that of that offspring, like the Gooty mouse that, that yeah, so um, let, me let me pause you there and sort of uh, break that down a little bit for the folks. And that's such a beautiful way you said it, Leslie. So what we're basically saying is everyone remembers we have DNA, 
right? And that DNA is wound up in this chromosome that we see. And so there's these things called histones where little protein balls that sit in there wound around that. And so these chemicals that, uh, that Leslie Stone is speaking to here, everybody, is that when we add these nutrient cofactors to the system, that allows that unwinding of the DNA that allows that then to be read and turn into what they call post-translational, which is the protein that we use for any function in our body. So that's the critical piece of what Dr. Jertle found and Dr. Stone here is trying to lay out for us. But for me, your biggest aha moment I think here is brilliant is that, hey, this is occurring all the time, preconception and during conception. And hey, why don't we try and modify all of these throughout, right? That's what I'm hearing you say. That plus, it's not just in the chromatin manipulation or the histone modifications. It turns out um, we have we have these gene variants, you know, little tiny, right? Little tiny SNPs, little tiny um, base proteins that get shifted and suddenly change. And those, regardless, you know, the, the big chromosomal abnormalities are not common. They're not common, you right. know, but gene variants are incredibly common. You know, those right. are probably the piece, the nucleus, the, 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 the crux of what lets us adapt to our environments quickly in the moment. And that would be post-transcriptional, right? It's, it's mm -hmm. going to be post-transcriptional. But as it turns out, those gene variants create our proteins. Those might be enzymes, they might be transporters, they might be receptors, they might be... And totally, those enzymes <clears throat> are going to be... So the production of that enzyme or that protein is going to be affected by the gene variant. And that, that enzyme itself is going to be... So the gene, the gene, the, the enzyme itself or that production of the protein is going to be affected by a whole lot of the same cofactors that the same same molecules that manipulate our pre-transcriptional events you right. know so the same things that might be giving us a hard copy of a dna that was not like it was before in the in the f0 population but now changed in the f1 population who knows for how long but um, it's now that even after we've got this F1 generation, we get to continue. We've understood the mechanism to be uh, for gene variants in that piece of it that is also profoundly effective in, in manipulating our phenotypic expressions. Yep. There's a whole lot of overlap in that nutrition and lifestyle piece. So then we thought, okay, well, then let's put the whole darn thing together. Let's and and let's look at what has prospectively been um, researched on an individual, you know, micronutrient level or cofactor level. And so from that, we now will dive. If, if this is all right with you, we'll dive into what we decided to do. We looked at. So then we went back to our clinical population. So I've been doing obstetrics for almost forty years, right? So started looking at some common symptoms that were showing up, recognizing common and, and symptoms and signs in the physical examination and recognizing and in these common outcomes, recognizing that gene variance association, re, uh, recognizing the genetic associations, the lifestyle associations, and then picking out what, picking out what micronutrient deficiencies might be common that could, uh, could address all of these. Well, it turns out that when we looked at our population, carnitine turned out to be an incredibly important deficiency that has its profound effects in all of these different um, modalities. Um, vitamin D, another, you know, lots of different, lots of different functions in vitamin D. Zinc, 
iron, magnesium, um, omega-3 fatty acids, but particular DHA. And we and so we found these not only to be important for histone modifications, chromatin modifications, gene variants, but also for the function, the post, post-transcriptional function of all those enzymes and those proteins and those receptors. And then we found them deficient in our pregnancy population. Wait a minute. So when you were talking about the, um, what is the what are the implications of our standard American diet that we have unleashed upon the globe, you know? There it is. It's that we have these profound, our, our, our current uh, way of feeding ourselves and living doesn't allow us to have the, 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 the micronutriture stru- structure, the cofactor structure, even the macronutrient structure that is going to give us the resilience to prevent these chronic diseases. But right. the good news is, is we can now target them. We can figure out what those are. We just needed to recognize them. And so we began the process of two things, looking at particularly profound gene variants, starting with a couple in the methylation realm. Because as you know, methylation lives, it's kind of like the cog, it's the major center of the wheel in the entire biochemistry of your body, practically. It has such a profound effect. So we thought we'd start there because it also, in its overlap then, again, with maternal um, morbidities, uh, preeclampsia, gestational diabetes, um, weight gain characteristics, and neonatal and stress regulation. Um, So that goes into all the behavioral things, right? Um, And then also in neonatal outcomes, the ones that are most profoundly affected, that, that affect developmental health over the lifespan are the, the highest quartile, the highest risk baby is going to be a preterm birth baby. The next one's going to be small for gestational age. That's just being too small, less in the 10th percentile compared to the rest of your cohorts. Mm-hmm. Um, and then large for gestational age, the top 10th percentile. And the last one is a word that it's not in the literature broadly is stress dysregulation. And the, the um, effect of stress throughout trimester by trimester and the effect that that has on um, the phenotype of the baby being male or female, there's a differentiation there, but it's also determines presence of uh, resiliency in, in terms of anxiety, depression, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder. Yeah. A lot of motion shifts work there too. Right. Exactly. That's exactly, exactly. So we took all of that and wrapped it together and looked at, um, um, looked at the, well, I should say what it, what it looks like now. Let me put this, the refined version is we now examine someone, we bring in a pregnant patient. We will examine them thoroughly. Uh, the first part of that exam is history. We look for all the antecedents that might give them, um, suggest vulnerabilities. We look at their um, their lifestyle to make sure we can see where those vulnerabilities, fulcrums from which we can work. We look at them physically because there are tells you know, within one's body for that you can use as a very cheap and rapid way to figure out where those um, those cofactor deficiencies might lie. And then we went down and we targeted specifically the high the highest you know bang for our buck micronutrients. In standard of care, you typically check iron status, but then we added zinc, carnitine, twenty five hydroxy D. Um, and now as we are able to do it, we are adding omegas as well. Epidemiologically, we know that 80% of our pregnant population is likely to be suboptimal. 
Okay. And are you directly measuring DHA or you're doing an omega-3 index? DHA. We do. We DHA. Okay. Um, we also don't do a full carnitine look. We do. I mean, the, the, that is the nuts and bolts of this. We look at three. We look at free total and uh, esterified ratios okay. because some of these we, we were doing. We want to do this in the population that's the most at risk because the overarching maybe the underlying basis of all this um, that drives us the most is that that I wonder if this is the crux, these deficiencies is the crux of our social disparities. You know, that our, if we could optimize, if we could optimize those persons at greater risk and bring them up to a level playing field for productivity, for well-being, for um, being uh, societal well-being as well, maybe this is where we should be starting. This is yeah. gonna be our most powerful moment right now. It's also, the reason it's the most powerful moment is that many people have a hard time motivating for any of these kinds of, you know, difficult lifestyle changes, right? Well, you get pregnant or you contemplate being pregnant and all of a sudden, even the most drug addicted person in my experience, even if they do not have the coping skills, they want what's best. They do want what's best. And so what if we go through, pick out these vulnerabilities that make them more likely to be addictive and we meet those needs. And then we ask for a lifestyle change. Mm -hmm. Then we ask for those, those small, those doable nutritional plans, lifestyle plans, once they're empowered, because then they become the drivers of their health. And that is our powerful moment that, that we can take advantage of in the pregnancy time period or the pre-contemplative time period. So, yeah. yeah, so we take these micronutrients and now we've added in, we've created a 44 panel gene, gene variant panel that targets our maternal morbidities, our neonatal morbidities, and looks at, um, looks at the, the, the strength of the data but it also looks at what are the inducers or inhibitors or readily available products that we could maybe that we can get our patient to be able to consume either in terms of a nutrition program or a nutrient supplement program. And if they have, if those are doable and they have a profound effect on um, minimizing our understanding of them has a profound effect on minimizing these morbidities, then those are the ones that are included. The other piece that we found when we included all of these is there's significant overlap within those that are included in the, in, you know, the genes that manage inflammation, the genes that manage lipid metabolism, the genes that manage glucose and insulin metabolism. There's um, vitamin D metabolism. There's remarkable overlap. And interestingly enough, they also overlap with the, the pediatric outcomes, the childhood outcomes in terms of our burgeoning experience with autism spectrum disorder and attention deficit or sensory perception disorders and, and childhood asthma and autoimmune disorders. And then of course, as we look on, they, they definitely predict there's an overlap with our adult um, neurocognitive function, our adult endocrine function, our adult cardiovascular function, metabolic syndrome. Yeah. So it just can, it just wraps into a remarkable redundancy, which is what I find reassuring um, because it, it speaks to a profoundly strong and robust way to take a look. We have lots of ways to be able to manipulate these um, outcomes as long as we're aware of them and individuate them for the, for the patient. 
So we look at these four gene variants. We look at their overlap with micronutrient deficiencies. We look at their lifestyle and we create what's called a core food plan. This core food plan, there's 12 different versions to start with that um, they are based in a low glycemic modified Mediterranean diet has the best data for outcomes. Mm -hmm. There's a couple other that have good outcomes as well, but the broadest, the broadest best. And then it is, and then we put filters over top of that. Oh, do they have, are they overweight? Are they underweight? Are they Medicaid? And they need to have a certain um, food uh, selection in this core food plan. Are they, are they um, from a Latina background and they need a cultural shift in the types of food that are suggested in their core food plan? Are they in a food desert? You know, are they going to be able to get, do they need to do all their shopping from the Dollar Tree? You know, and so there's there's filters that overlap and individuate. And then on top of that, so we, we, we do that lifestyle and yeah, antecedent piece of it. And then over top of that, we weave in the micronutrient deficiencies and um, gene variant so that suggest vulnerabilities. With that, we have created uh, with a with over the decade or 12 years, I would say that we've been doing this, maybe even a little bit longer. Um, we have found that uh, we've also created a base nutrient pack that addresses really common uh, prena uh, prenatal needs perinatal needs and perinatal deficiencies. As you know, standard of care is to provide a multivitamin. We also know that um, even just recently published, I'm trying to think, even just this spring, a study came out that they found that in terms of the known common nutrient deficiencies, there were only six prenatal vitamins that met most of those micronutrients as it turns out, and it's micronutrient needs. And, and so this is just an example of how we, we have provided a base that gives, the, gives most of the most common needs. And then if there's a demonstrated micronutrient deficiency over top of that base, then we will target it with a supplement. But food first, lifestyle first, and then that micronutrient supplementation targeted. Then we follow them. We we mod those those core food plans are modified based on the changing needs of try uh, the first trimester, which is embedded in the concept of differentiation. You take cells that that are just pluripotent and they turn into your kidney. <laughs> you know, they turn into your brain. They do right, and then in the second trimester, you start multiplying those. You start that that organogenesis. They start once they've differentiated, they start multiplying and getting robust robust uh, uh, amounts of cells in there. This is also at the time of placentation. And you had brought up that article about the presence of excess fructose and the disruption that that itself can start in a particular type of environment where if you get faulty placentation, we have all sorts of other issues that we address in a trimester, trimester basis as well. And even into the postpartum time period when breastfeeding becomes of such import for pushing that, bringing that child into that very potent um, developmental time period, those first four years. Yeah. So, and then we followed it. We just followed it along and ended up with remarkable, remarkable results.
So before you get into the data, I want to pull on a couple of these levers, right? So we talked about the word systems biology, which in this podcast is not an uncommon term that we throw around. But what you're basically stating is that the reductionist approach that we tend to look at medicine with, where there's one issue, you pull on that, the disease goes away. That's not the case when it looks at whole optimal health. And I think this is now being proven over and over again, whether it's the work of uh, Dale Bredesen with uh, uh, neurodegenerative disease of Alzheimer's type or, you know, Kara Fitzgerald, when she was on, we talked about this from just a, an epigenetic perspective of reversing your aging from a, from a DNA perspective. Then, you know, with Dr. Walls, I mean, I, you know, time after time now we're seeing experts in the space like yourself saying, there's a different way to look at this. And it has to be that this redundancy that you're speaking to is only becoming dysfunctional now because we've really thrown everything wrong at it and it no longer can fix the, the pathways. I sort of liken this to if you have cardiovascular disease for a while and you're developing these extra arteries to protect that, uh, you know, the, the main artery that's about to occlude, you, you will survive. Right. So you have six, seven, eight, nine little little arteries developing around on their own to protect you. That's what the system's meant to do. But oh, by the way, if you keep pounding yourself to death with bad food, no exercise, smoking, they're not going to make it. And that big main is going to occlude and you're going to drop dead. So you really laid out a beautiful case for the epigenetic slash upstream targeting of the antecedents of why we're going sideways. And you're actually beautifully looking for the answers in the patient as ends of one, right? And this is another yes. thing I think systems biology must speak to is protocolization of medicine, I think is a mistake because all we're doing is saying that 5% on each side of the bell curve are gonna suffer because they don't fit the mainstream reality. And in this case, you are looking at each individual's outcomes because we know, for example, you used, you know, pervasive developmental layer autism spectrum. We know that MTHFR is cystobiothion synthetase um, catecholomethyltransferase, these single nucleotide polymorphisms you're speaking to are associated. Causal, it's always a question mark, but there's an association yeah. there. So if we can go and pull on 30 or 44 levers, as you're stating, that one of those levers or five of them at once are going to hit those genes that are otherwise non-dangerous for us 150 years ago, now you can reverse that. I think that to me is the beauty of what you're doing and stating to you know modern society, hey, there's a better way to do this. We are not going to accept anymore the outcomes that we're seeing over and over again. Children who are LGA, children who are SGA, children who are preterm, when we don't have to, right? So I we think that's the big key. Yeah, that's exactly it. So I think our assumption has been that we couldn't do anything about it. We were taking a disempowered stance because the one problem, one disease, is just not the way it really works. <laughs> it's just right. not. And At so, all. but, but the the great optimism that comes that I receive from this elegant 360 degree view in a systems way is that, well, I might not be able to get everything perfect, but the good news is, is I don't have to. Right. I just have to get some of it. I have to get some of it. And the pieces that you can do, those are the ones I want to figure out. The pieces you can't do, I'm going to let those go, you know. And so I, you know, we can't. If if it, one path doesn't work for that individual, then there's going to be another one. And if I haven't found it, I haven't looked hard enough, you know, because yeah. there will be one. The well, other and to your, one, to your point, want, before you before this. you before you go on, let me just pause you one second. You know that that is the key, though. You're not done. 
you're still peeling this onion. And as you go farther, choline may be a big piece. So we're going to keep yes. looking and looking and looking and looking until we get optimal, right? And what is optimal? Well, that's N of one dependent, each person. So, okay, sorry, continue. So if we take this out of the population, I mean, there is some benefit. There is benefit to this population-based statistics, this non-N of one, lots of big Ns, right? You know, because they do give us a basis for understanding. But then if we layer in the systems approach, then it's when we get to target those individuals. And I would say over a large population. Now let's take that N of one and multiply it by 300 million in the US, okay? And all of a sudden these, these uh if I tried to push on, let's say, if I tried to push on a chromosomal abnormality, which is really hard to do, I'm not going to get, I'm not, it, it doesn't happen often enough to make a significant difference in these maternal morbidities or in the neonatal morbidities. But if I take a common gene variant that happens in, as, it, as we discover, like the methylation issues in MTHFR, for example, 50% of the population, well, then if I do a small little manipulation, and it happens to change preeclampsia in a whole big group of 50% of the, you know, however many that are being pregnant, then now I actually get shift in my outcomes, whereas I couldn't have ever done it before. So there is a, yeah. So this is powerful. These little tiny changes, these, and, and the epigenetic pieces, when we methylate pre-transcriptionally and we like maybe at the imprint home, we shut off a particularly deleterious piece just by, adding in, you know, a little bit of methylation in the, in that particular time period, all of a sudden we've got some really amazing, amazing reductions in preterm birth and the things that, you know, in these small gestational ages that we didn't have any means of addressing in, in the, in the past. Right. I feel like the fault that we do in allopathic medicine is that we think that because we're so, and we are good at acute care medicine. We are, yep. I, I, I would go, I would go to, me, <laughs> you know, I would go to allopathy for an acute event every time. I break my leg, you know, I'm going to go. Yep. But if I'm trying to figure out why I broke my leg and I want to get to the crux of osteoporosis or something, why is it that I have that? I'm going to back it down, back it down, back it down to the root cause for me. And right. then I'm going to address that. Maybe it's my VDR receptor in our current studies, for example, 98% of our patients have VDR receptor abnormalities. I can't believe it, but there it is. It's a small, you know, we're just finding this data. It's very important to look, to individuate. Right. And and, that and, person, I know exactly what I'm going to do. And so pull on that for a second though, because again, 98% of your patients have a VDR receptor SNP or single nucleotide polymorphism, what to everyone listening, which knows this, but it's the, it's a gene change that allows that gene to function. Like, let's say if it's a heterozygous, it's a four cylinder engine instead of an eight cylinder engine car. So it's pulling, but not pulling well, you're not making as much D or you're not receiving it as well in this case, if it's the receptor, but, oh, by the way, why hasn't this been an issue for a thousand years? Well, we spent most of our time outside. So we had so much exposure mm -hmm. to the UVB rays of the sun that that 
receptor defect really never came to pass in a way that's really detrimental. Whereas now if you're indoors all day, the blast of sun you had for 20 minutes, now it's not enough to trigger the vitamin D response that we need. So I think you've, you, you're, again, you're hitting on all these really important pieces. And again, I really appreciate you coming back from the end of one and going to the 30,000 foot view, because that is how on a population health level, we see mm -hmm. also, you know, we're moving the needle in the right direction. Right, the whole needle, as opposed to the mm -hmm. end of one, which again, I I think we need both, which is clearly the the okay. what you've done. Mm -hmm. So, as we're moving in that direction as a population health analysis, and you're saying, okay, the Mediterranean diet clearly the best studied in almost all chronic disease of aging makes the most sense up front. But I love also the fact that you're saying, hey, not everybody can do this. So let's culturally pull in this. Let's look at this. Look at this. Meet the patient where they're at. They're more yeah. likely to meet you in the middle, which means they're at least going to get some change, which again, in my clinic being 70% Medicaid, a lot of kids with social determinant social determinants of need struggles, we have to meet them wherever we can so that that'll affect any change. May not be perfect, may not be optimal, but boy, we're heading in the right direction. So I love the fact that you're going there because mm -hmm. again, that's real life, right? We're not living in the ivory tower of academia oh. and stating, hey, this is what, no, love it, Leslie. That's fantastic. All right, let's get granular about the results because the results are quite impressive from 2011 to 2017 and on. So what do you what did you find out after you've now done the work with the patient at the you know rubber meets the road level and then you looked at the F1 generation too. What did we find because as the F1 generation doctor, I love what I see. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually I'm sticking I'll just go there and then I want to remember to come back to the power of ACEs scores given that you are in pediatrics, you know. That's the other thing that we have integrated into our our um preconception or and and pregnancy counseling is that We'll come back to it. Okay, because <laughs> it is just so yeah, it's not just all the nutrition piece of it. So, and I would like to be able to talk to both what we have discovered in 2014, published in 2014, our longitudinal data at 2017, and then now our current study that's only mid-study. It right, only give you trends, but it's a slightly different population. It's the one with the VDR receptor that is so high, but it's also mostly Black and Latina. Mm. You know, so there's an example of what, of what Makes you're describing. Yeah. Exactly right. Okay, so and so um, we watched our patients um, for for two years and looked at their results compared to the small community hospital in which they were um, delivered, the same one that I delivered, and then we also compared them regionally and uh, and and nationally and found that we ended up with in this small population, I had no preterm births and no small for gestational age. Um, outcomes. We had very little, we had significantly reduced preeclampsia and gestational diabetes. The large for gestational age was questionable. If you put it together with three, with all three, if you grouped those, there was a significant difference. And so the prediction was that that would be, so that, and then we tried to predict into the future what that would, re, uh, what that would look like. So then in subsequent years, we, um, over, and we reviewed this in 2017 not published, and looked at these same uh, morbidities 
And with our cohort being over 400, clear almost 500 and comparing them locally and found that we still beat out our local competition, but um, we ended up with a, a preterm birth rate of about 1.6%, preeclampsia rate very low, all, all everything quite low. And then we had a chance to take a look in a, in a, at our um, offspring and found that our autism rates are attention deficit rates and our asthma atopy rates, we're all in that less than 2% range. Right. Just remarkably. Beyond so, remarkable. When you consider we're at a one in 40 national average right yeah. now, you're bucking the trend tremendously. Mm-hmm. And so, and I want to give people comparators because you listed 1.6% preterm birth and grow baby, but that's compared to Oregon 7.7%. So it's a 4X difference. So that's yeah. critical because just hearing 1.6 without what everyone else is getting. And then the the the, the USA data is even more impressive. 1.6 yeah. versus 11.5%. That's, you know, what, 9X difference. So yeah. this is massive. And, and, and we're not talking just about mom and child dyad, which is hugely important for their health. But think about the implications financially for the entire governmental system moving forward. If we don't have one child with autism spectrum disorder, the cost associated with raising that child till 25 years of age or, or asthma. I mean, I have tons of kids with asthma, the cost associated with the drugs and the visits, to the office and the, and the, the mom and dad uh, time missing work. I mean, Leslie, the, the economic side of this needs to be looked at as well, because if you break that down into a number, like I can't even imagine. And again, I always question these realities. Why state governments wouldn't be all over this in every single state in the country? I know you've got stuff to talk about there. So I'm yeah, gonna let I know, you I know. go. <laughs> Deep breath. But, exactly. But I'm like, the whole government should be going crazy on this. Because again, if you think about it from a societal perspective, the saving money part is what the government cares about. You and I care about each individual person on a population bell fine too. But the government should care at that level too. So Go there now. So where where are you going now with this project? Um, so our goal again is trying to is trying to level the playing field, you know, get everybody up in the same region. So in the same ability, the same jump off part, regardless of the um, condition of our environment, right? We should optimize within our environment as exists now. Not to say that we shouldn't be optimizing our environment, right? Yeah, good point. So so um, we'd been searching around for um, people who would be willing to fund this project in our most vulnerable populations. And in a remarkable, unique collaboration with a managed care company, read that, Medicaid provider, they have agreed in a prospective fashion to fund, you know, before any claims are made and they get any money back, they are, they are they're paying up front in order to get better outcomes which in their moms and in their babes, which will in turn be less claims for them. We did an actuary analysis of this and figured that they could save, you know, well, it costs $65,000 per, just for the preterm birth itself. And if you applied our program in the Nevada, and this happens to be in Nevada, um, if you apply that um, program in the Nevada population, their preterm birth rate is about 11.2%. And so if you took the Grow Baby program and applied it there, it takes about, you have to have 10 pregnancies to get one less preterm birth. And that was just it, just the preterm birth, not looking at any of the other morbidities we'd be saving. And so you get per 100, then you're having 10 less preterm births per 100. And And so 
Yeah. I'll say at our hospital, we get about 800 deliveries a year. So you divide that out and you're looking at 80 times 68,000, you know, half a million dollars. If I'm running my math really quickly there, just in one year, based on your work. Phenomenal. And just in your hospital, you know, exactly. There's so, there's so many reasons to do this. So they, they see this and they say, okay, let's give it a go, you know? And um, so we've been working with them for the last year, um, working with, you know, within a few clinics that, that provide uh, the Medicaid population, the Molina Medicaid is what they're called. And um, we are now up to 18. So it's not a big enough number. We want a hundred to be able to give us some reasonable data. But thus far, our population looks like it's um, 74% Black and Latina. There's one Filipina and hardly any Caucasian. And um, 75% of them are high-risk obstetrics. And we, again, have yet to have a preterm birth. We have yet to have any adverse outcomes. We have one gestational diabetic. And that's far. And she had no adverse outcomes with her deliveries. So we're waiting for statistical significance, of course. The power, the power to power this study is going to take it'll it'll take the hundred probably by the time you have dropout and exclusions and such. But, and, the, and then and then hopefully meet that P value and then we're off to the races publishing the data. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I think that's this entire discussion is so emblematic of everything in medicine every direction we should be turning in medicine should be this direction, the upstream antecedent risk factors of any disease. And the reason that I sort of sent you the Nakagawa, Richard Johnson's article was the discussion point around here. It is one macro technically, you know, fructose, which is fruit sugar is driving potentially. And again, it's, it, it appears to be true. Well, more studies will prove this out, but appears to be driving this excess uric acid production, which we know turns on inflammasomes, which turns on inflammation, which then is associated with preeclampsia, right? But mm-hmm. the anthropologic side of that, I think is so brilliant because again, this gene was so useful for millennia until we start overloading the system with fructose through our beverages, our foods, everything that you're speaking to, the food deserts, the experiences that the person who is on the poverty scale has significantly higher utilization of because of the the food costs of the really high quality foods are expensive. We're not even in their environment. And so we're trying to fight a system to some extent that is pushing our inherent host genetics that have been great for millennia are now negative, the system actually pushes those genes to be dysfunctional for us, leading to the outcomes that in the absence of grow baby are going to be more and more statistically dysfunctional for society. And we see this, you know, we're the what number one country in the world as far as financial ability, yet we're ranked 40th, I think. I can't remember what the last one was in our mm-hmm. perinatal uh, you know, outcomes. That's, That's mm-hmm. unbelievable, right? So I, I think that you've hit the nail absolutely on the head of the understanding of the maternal child dyad. And now I want, if you don't have anything more to say on this whole topic, let's go back to the ACEs. Well, and I'll put in one piece that I have also left out, and that is the the, uh, the microbiome and the profound mm-hmm. effect. It's just another piece of this system that I don't want to leave out. And I have but um, it's probably because I don't have any great prospective data yet, but we have really interesting suggested data that says um, small studies that say that we can, that if we, if we watch the health of that microbiome, we can develop 
a tolerogenic microbiome that also reduces these, these morbidities as well. So it's another push-pull place. And you're talking and about maternal microbiome first, right? Maternal microbiome. That's exactly right. Right. And I think that I think that's pretty I think the data is now pretty well emerging on so many levels. I think about just even the methylation side of the coin, how the microbiome is heavily involved in B vitamin production. And so if you, oh, by the way, happen to have a single nucleotide polymorphism in MTHFR or, you know, one of the other, you know, MTHFD1, then if your microbiome is dysfunctional, you are even at higher risk. So you're now pulling on another lever of need. So this would be, okay, you need even potentially more methylated B vitamins that, you know, not folic acid or what's been technically told for us forever. So mm-hmm. I, I, I applaud that. And I think for me, the microbiome, the intestinal microbiome still remains this unbelievably frustrating space. It's got incredible science. It looks like it is the key to so much, yet we're still so far away from really shifting the needle with probiotics. I know there are some that are functional. They do have some benefit, and I'll let you speak to those. But I'm, I, at least in pediatrics, I am almost entirely now locked and loaded on fiber, 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 more fiber, more fiber, until we can get something like an acromancia available for the kids or something that we know makes a big difference. I think mm-hmm. the only probiotic that I'm aware of that the science is phenomenon is the Evivo or the B Infantis 1.0, the one, the group uh, um, in California, because of the, the that being fed is the only one that has the 19 genes to consume all the human milk oligosaccharides in mom's milk. Problem with that one is the cost is prohibitive for most of my patients. Right. So I have some that use it and works great, but yeah. yeah. So it is what I'm, my point being that it, as you are pointing out, is that it gives us another fulcrum. The, uh, the information is not, if anything, the information is driving us to what do we do about stress regulation, which brings us to the ACE scores that so profoundly affect microbiome reproduction, right? And our ability, the fiber, the food that we feed it, the people that you eat it with, the dirt that it comes from, all of those pieces that maybe are modifiable. Because again, the crux of this is having to make it, we have to make it doable. Otherwise it's disempowering. You know, we're giving, we can't give somebody something to do and say, oh, sorry, you can't do that. (laughs) You know, it's just, we just can't, it can't be the part of it. And so the, there is enough information out there for me to say that um, what we're trying to do with our, in our maternal world is to try to work with tolerogenic species, try to give them, you know, feed them the FOS, give them the 2FS or whatever it's called. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and give those, give that food, because it seems to develop, give that food, because it seems to get, develop the proper tolerogenic, um, uh, not stimulating the immune system in that first, in the, in the, in utero or in the first year, at least of life. And yeah. then we end up with, yeah. So that's the focus that we are aiming at. And we do give a, a supplement at this point that just has rhamnosus and ruteri in it, but, um, Mostly what we're aiming at is getting that proper fructolicosaccharide profile. Yeah. Yeah. And so this reminds me of an article I just wrote yesterday on breastfeeding. I was reading an article in Scientific American regarding uh, a person's opinion around the experience she had. And I think this is going to layer into where you're going next with breastfeeding and best is 
Forest is best, that the AAP is very much a proponent of it. We all know mm -hmm. in the science literature that there is nothing comparable to breast milk on the planet. It is the most incredible nutrient-dense substance that a child can take. And Formula has tried very well to mimic it and continue to uh, be the best version it can be within the framework of the system as it is. And I'm not demonizing Formula by one by one iota. But the article is very clear in the statement that we as a medical society should not be saying breast is best because we are putting undue stressors on mothers that then could then have massive, in this case, this woman had PTSD slash OCD, she was claiming based on this. And on a population health, going back to the mac, you know, N of one versus the population health side, I think that from a provider perspective, I can't get behind. I think the answer for me was we need to do a better job. And I think you can speak to this of providing the support at the mother's exactly. level where she doesn't feel so disempowered, stressed out, frustrated, whatever it is. So therefore the breastfeeding experience, even if it doesn't happen, it doesn't become a, a distressor. Not exactly. We can't walk away from breast as best. So yeah. go ahead, speak to that and then speak so, to the whole yeah. ACEs reality. Yeah. So the advantage that we have in being um, integrated into an obstetric system, and actually, it's I, I will also put a, a, a note back, the most powerful time period probably is in the preconception time period, we just very often don't get to get that. But what that does is it speaks to any providers out there or people who want to be pregnant. Think about it before you want to, because that is incredibly powerful. That's the time to be thinking these thoughts and working in this way. So um, the advantage we have is being able to work through and develop a, a base of empowerment when we come to that third trimester when we're starting to introduce these concepts of, of how important breastfeeding is. And we are able to individuate those concepts, right? If we know that this person, I'll just use an example. So they have cystic fibrosis. I'm probably not going to try to encourage this person to breastfeed. I'm going to, you know, because you'll end up with a, you know, a massive breast abscesses because their, their mucin secretion is an issue, right? So there's an example of somebody who, no, we can't do that. But what we can do is we can offer some alternatives. We can have that person, there's, there are donor milks out there, you know, that can, that can be part of the answer. People are, uh, the development of breast, uh, of breast substitutes are, breast milk substitutes is improving. They are making headway. Um, even small amounts of breastfeeding does have an, uh, small amounts, even mixed breastfeeding and chest feeding mm -hmm. has its advantage. And so all of this can be encouraged in a positive way. It turns out to be that most of our good, you know, thinking basic psychology, most of our good occurs when we re-encourage things that that they that somebody can do mm -hmm. rather than discouraging something they they shouldn't be doing. Right. Because you get, yeah, yeah. So it doesn't, it's not durable, it won't last, it, it doesn't work. So another good sign from our work, our just our little trend now, our mid mid-study trend, is that we have a, a just a little over 70% breastfeeding rate. Yeah. Very that's impressive a, given it. That's very good. impressive. It's very impressive in a high-risk population, you know, and, and one that probably yeah. So 
it's short, it's, it's little, but it's, but it's, it's encouraging. It's encouraging. So what is the effect? What do we do with this ACEs score? We know we, if we take that ACEs score all the way back to the um, preconception time period, we know stress's effect on paternal fertility, on, on um, sperm, on sperm quality, on reactive oxygen species, on the effect on the microbiome and the effect of having a reduced or dysfunctional microbiome on increasing reactive DNA deterioration and reactive oxygen species in in paternal sperm. We know that that carnitine deficiencies in the dad are are an issue too. But going on to ACEs scores, so high ACEs scores will give us that issue in terms of paternal health and needs to be addressed. Mm -hmm. We know that high ACEs scores greater than four on out of 10 on that score, more likely to be small for gestational age, preterm birth, preeclampsia, and all of those we have associations with cognitive, neurocognitive, endocrine, metabolic, all of them. And so what are the answers for those? We have some really great data that says that yes, relaxation, particularly at time periods within the um, pregnancy, it turns out stress, stress responses are probably most um, important, have the most impact at 15 to 23 weeks or so, maybe a little bit farther than that into 28. By the time you hit the third trimester, the own, the placental cortisol, the maternal cortisol, the, the neonatal, the fetal cortisol is at such a pitch that probably further stressors don't make a difference. They probably don't but they are profoundly influential in terms of producing preterm birth, for example, if they're experienced in the second trimester. So we also have some great data that shows simple things. Actually, this, this story begins clear back in, in China, Tai Zhao, uh, you know, 2000 year old practice of graceful living, poetry, music, contemplation. And uh, it, it has its Western equivalent in a study where they put um, had women put their hands on their pregnant bellies in this second trimester time period for 15, uh, for 15 minutes and listen to um, their favorite music. And then they measured pre pre that that pre intervention, they measured umbilical cord flow, you know, within the Doppler cord velocities in the in the uterus. And um, and they did it post and they found a significant drop in what would be blood pressure perfusion to the baby. That concept of placental health can be influenced in 15 minutes a day. Which biochemically, again, is fascinating because hypoxia, right? If the poor perfusion and or hypoxia drives the fructose pathway through the polyol pathway, yeah. which then turns yeah. on all of the things we were talking about that increase mm -hmm. the risk of preeclampsia. Yeah. So we have even now the biochemical pathways to speak to what used to be in allopathic medicine, you know, the woo woo, that stuff. You can't prove it now. Forget mm -hmm. it. It's all real. It's not woo. -woo it's science. It's, it's beautiful. Real. It's so yeah. real. I wanted to get back to, I, I was thinking about this fructose um, uric acid link as well. And I thought about just to bring back into, if you can't push it on one way, if I can't get rid of the fructose initially, then maybe I can improve you in well-being. Maybe you've got, if you happen to be one of those persons who is a, you know, whose methylation is impaired, then it is also um, peripherally responsible for uric acid 
catabolism. And so it is possible in the midst of this is that if we address, if we know that genetically, we can reduce that risk of accumulated uric acid, which has its vaso um, deleterious effects. So right, we right, have, right. again, just another example of how we have multiple ways. If we can't get it done one way, let's try another one that works for that individual person. Right. There are so many levers to pull on in this, redu so this redundant, beautiful system. I was interviewing um, EA Quinn a, a year and a half ago. She's a specialist in breastfeeding. And one of the things that I always remarked upon was that no matter what macronutrients the mother ate or consumed, the milk almost always came out relatively the same across the globe, with the exception of a few instances like at high elevation where there was more brown fat production. Um, yeah. So the the fat, so the redundancy of the system over millennia through evolution has allowed us to take in rice, beans, and, you know, greens here and over here, whale fat and this, and still maintain a solvent system relatively up until the invention of the Western diet. <laughs> and now all those redundant factors are now troublesome. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. this is super fascinating to me. And I, I can't wait to see how you, your group, your, your team evolves more with this, this data set and the patient outcomes and where this all goes. Because again, I think you've hit the nail on the head that isn't happening in general in this country the way it needs to be. And for me, it's anthropologic. You've you've gone back and looked at the whys that went sideways. Now you're undoing the whys through macros, micros, or cofactors, the 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 risk side of stress, the microbiome, and your lever, 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 all through systems biology approach. And Leslie, it's just it's just super stunning to me to to see the outcome data, especially just you know from a pediatrician side, just the ASD data. That to me is is more than enough reason to shout this from the rooftops everywhere we can, just because the 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 struggle that so many folks are are having right now in this country with autism and, and in my clinic, we can't get therapy for these kids. And yes, and exactly. The, yeah, the mental health crisis. You know, yeah, exactly. Of trying to get enough care. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And so all and and that layers in the other piece of, you know, the nutritional dysfunction side, uh, children with ASD tend to have very restrictive palates. So mm -hmm. they, they gravitate towards the Western diet, which then keeps them in to me, a more dysfunctional state. So I think all of these things, if you can address it upstream before these um, neurodiversities show up less problem for everybody in general, which I think again, speaks to the importance of mm -hmm. what you do, you know, cause again, as a pediatrician, our, outcomes are not insignificantly controlled by you. <laughs> and, and, and I'm grateful for you being upstream, looking at this going, you know, this matters. So then when we get the children, we don't have as much work to do, frankly, is what I'm, you know, and who better to drive a system of healing than the mother, right? Because I mean, if you ask any medical uh, um, business person, who drives the decision-making in all of medicine is a hundred percent the mother. It's so true. where you're, who you're attacking from the, and I probably shouldn't use the word attacking, who you are approaching to mm -hmm. help modify upstream targets or mitigate change is the right person not to leave dad out to your point. Dad has a role completely, mm -hmm. but mom is the key. Yeah. Yeah. And then if we can get these changes so that this child, this new offspring has, never knows anything different. 
never yeah. knows anything different. So you would ask the question of what would I do? What would I, what do I see happening? And it, it has to do with policy because it needs to be spread, right? And the good news is the optimistic news is that we, you know, the uh, Grow Baby Group went to uh, a nutrition and pregnancy uh, conference back in Washington, D.C., where policymakers were getting together and saying, okay, what are we going to do about this problem? Um, the uh, NIH has a nutrition and pregnancy database, shared database that people are, are funding, are, are, are funding with data, that is, to, to see if we can start answering these questions. But ultimately, it needs to come down to us changing some of our agribusiness, you know, it needs to be right. We need to, we need to, uh, we have certain legislature that encourages big box uh, grocery stores, which push out the local grocer and then end up with food deserts developing. And so what we, we need to have some pushback for local, for local, um, control and interest, you know, kind of, kind of making the end of the community, the end of one, where our policies benefit that community specifically, rather than a larger structure. So that's where our effort, you know, to make it, to make it go, we need that to happen. I would agree with you. And that's your golden ticket. If I could give it to you, I'd let you walk right up to Congress and hand it. That's where that, that, that to I me, I'm always the, the school food kid because I tend to look at it from the child's perspective. I'd change all school food, but honestly, with yours, school food would change. So you're farther upstream than than my wish. And uh, and I totally agree and love that decision. So how can people follow your work? Um, I know you have a website, so I'm going to let you sort of list where the where the places that the listeners can go to say, hey, I get to follow Dr. Leslie Stone, where she's going, what's coming, what I can learn about this this research. So, um, so growbabyhealth.com is the LLC and it, um, houses, you know, it's a website, but it talks about all these different panels that are available. There are consults available through our fabulous nutritionist who really, Emily Ridbaum, who really is the implementer of all of this, you know, has taken all of this esoterica and codified it into a doable program, a core food, you know, just all in, in a very elegant fashion. So that can be followed there. And we also have a 501c3. So it is Grow Baby Life Project that is um, also is updated and keeps us, keeps you apprised of what we're trying to do, particularly in this Medicaid population. Our goal with that is to hopefully talk. This is one, this is one managed care company who have, we have a presence in Nevada now, but they have a presence in 19 states. So what happens if we could actually make this happen, maybe even in the pre-policy level, if we get our managed care companies who provide the Medicaid population, right? Some states even nearing almost 100% of their population is covered by that. Not, the rest of us are more like 50%. But if we got that population paying up front to reduce their costs at the end with a concurrent improvement, you know, if we can make that happen, then we really have some leverage going for improving yeah. our national health and perhaps even our global health. Yeah, you're rolling you're rolling a snowball downhill and it's going to gain steam. Yeah. Fantastic. Any social media presence for people to follow you on? There is Facebook. There is Facebook and occasional Instagram. Yep. 
very good. Well, I got to say this, Leslie, this is um, just fantastic work. This has been a call conversation that I've wanted to do for quite a while. It's my pleasure to have the opportunity to hear the words come out of your mouth directly because you and Emily are the keys to change. And without folks like you, who are peeling the onion to find the reasons to do the work to say, Hey, there's a better way we get stuck. We, 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 we stay in mm-hmm. status quo and status quo is unfortunately broken. So kudos to you and your team for this amazing work. And I'm absolutely looking forward to following it over time and have you back on when we get another set of data and we see more, or we have new changes that are really important to, to let the world know about. So I'm going to give you the last word. I am just so grateful that you have, given us your time. Well, I appreciate your ears and your heart as well and your interest because ultimately this needs to be pushed through through the life cycle. Exactly. And that's where you are. Yeah. Crucial. Thank you so much. I look well, forward to the AIC visit. That is going to be super fun. I look forward to it as well. I hope you have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. What an amazing conversation. This is, to me, the future of medicine. This is how we should be going about understanding human health and disease. Actually looking at individuals as they are, but then also at a population level too, as Dr. Stone said. We should be looking at each person, but also at the 30,000 foot view on a population status so we can see trends, but also we can see each person's individualization based on this. And that's how we're going to move this country forward from a health span perspective, not just a lifespan perspective. And I think for me, we really had an amazing discussion around what this all looks like. What, how do we get upstream to these targets? And, and Dr. Stone's team, you know, have really opened the door for the rest of the country to start beginning this process of prenatal obstetrical analyses and then education and mitigation strategies to help a mother-child dyad, a mother-father-child dyad, triad, I mean, start to to do the work to reduce risk, right? I mean, there's some data that we now see if you have a methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase single nucleotide polymorphism combined with a cystathione beta synthase mutation in mom, and the child's DNA actually has a catechol methyl transferase defect, single nucleotide polymorphism, that child has a 700% elevation risk in ASD. So then we would want to look at these folks as a, hmm, what are the stopgap measures for this? Is it methylated folate? Is it methyl donation in general? Is it the avoidance of toxins or the things that could tie up methylation? I mean, there's a lot to be discussed here. And it's a little bit tricky from the layperson's perspective, but from the physician's perspective, if we start understanding these norms, it becomes pattern specific. And then it's not a really difficult lift to help change the structure of somebody's supplement rate uh, scenario with prenatal vitamins that are targeted to these issues or diet, right? These are really important questions that are being asked and answered. And, you know, the, the work with uh, the developmental origins of human health and disease is critical. I mean, we know this now when there are areas where there is massive famine or some major stressor to a societal group, the pregnancy outcomes are different. And not only that, the health span outcomes are different. 
And so we know things are happening at the level of the gene while pregnant. And the, this is just so, 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 so critical. I also want to touch a little bit more on the whole fructose metabolism story by Dr. Johnson and Dr. Nakagawa and their team. You know, fructose metabolism or the fruit sugar, right, that we find in fruit or sucrose, which is table sugar, is half fructose, 50% fructose. So it's something that's ubiquitous in our environment. It's evolutionarily beneficial to humans because it stimulates inside the body the desire to forage for food. It raises blood pressure, which helps perfuse the body, especially the brain during periods of starvation. It helps in survival in areas where we have low oxygen by helping the body flip into glycolytic energy production instead of using the what's called the Krebs cycle or the oxidative phosphorylation where you need oxygen. It helps with it helps with fat deposition in the liver and in the periphery, which again helps with survival. And it also provides a sense of insulin resistance, which helps glucose get to the brain because there's different transporters. Glucose one and two transporters in the brain are insulin independent, whereas GLUT4 in the muscle is insulin dependent. So we now start to say, hmm, fructose metabolism has been something very beneficial evolutionary over time. And then we start to look at Dr. Johnson's new work around what's happening with the placenta, it turns out that that actually is again a beneficial reality that in a early placental environment, it's roughly the first 12 weeks of a relatively hypoxic environment. And so therefore the body will actually make fructose through the polyol pathway, which then can push metabolism back into this glycolytic type and preserve ATP, which is good for the placenta. And then at the 12th week, there's a plug that leaves that area there where the spiral artery is starting to form. And then the placenta starts to become perfused with oxygenated blood. And you switch into typical oxphos metabolism where you make your ATPs in a much higher volume. And then you can utilize any macronutrient during that process. We furthermore have learned that fructose primarily in the early stages of pregnancy uh, is related primarily as a precursor. It's being used in DNA and RNA synthesis, in the production of glycosaminoglycans and glycolipids. And, and for that, we're not seeing it primarily as an energy source. Now, if you think about the dysfunctional state of modern American eating patterns, where we have excess fructose, that in and of itself appears to be driving a dysfunction where we're having further problems with placental ischemia, which is low oxygen levels, which is in excess a loop effect on hypoxia-induced factor one alpha, which then leads to the increased production of uric acid from fructose, and then the activation of inflammasomes, which are fire-type particles of the immune system, the innate in the eighth side of the immune system, which causes localized damage and inflammation, but oh, by the way, also increases the activity of fructokinase, or ketohexokinase, which is the enzyme that actually is involved in uric acid production, right? And this is all part of that polyol pathway that Dr. Johnson discussed in podcast number 14, which I highly encourage you to go back and listen to. Now, Dr. Johnson, I'm going to hop on a podcast in July to discuss this data around placental activity, but this is really sort of important. Uric acid when it's produced in high volume, especially related to fructose ingestion well, from fruit, sugar, beverages, and foods that we're over-consuming, actually impairs the implantation of the trophoblasts into placental endothelium. 
Vasopressin will go up, leading to higher blood pressures. And then fructose metabolism also produces advanced glycated end products at an eight times higher rate than glucose, which again leads to increased inflammation. All of this then leads to this dysfunctional state of potentially preeclampsia, early preterm delivery, which is a major problem in risk for neurodevelopmental disorders. So for me, this is critical in the understanding of what is going on inside the human body. And I want to read from the Nature article that Dr. Johnson wrote. He says, the pathogenesis remains unclear. Fructose is biologically distinct from glucose and has a critical role in fetal growth and early pregnancy. Many species, including humans, produce fructose in their placenta during the first trimester to to assist fetal growth and survival during a time when hypoxia is significant. Fructose is preferred over glucose in hypoxic tissues and in the developing fetus. Fructose has a critical role in stimulating the production of nucleic acids, lipids, and glycosaminoglycans. Fructose production normally decreases significantly following the establishment of maternal fetal circulation following placentation. However, if there is impaired placentation, local hypoxia will continue to drive fructose production. Excess fructose drives endothelial dysfunction, oxidative stress, elevated blood pressure, insulin resistance, fatty liver, and rising uric acid and vasopressin levels, all of which are features of the preeclamptic state. In addition to fructose production, dietary fructose, for example, from soft drinks would be additive and has been reported to be a strong independent risk factor for preeclampsia. Uric acid-associated endothelial dysfunction disturbs the invasion of the spiral artery, leading to placental ischemia and further placental hypoxia. Here we summarize the previous literature regarding the physiological and pathological roles of fructose in pregnancy and proposed studies to further investigate the pathogenesis of preeclampsia, end quote. This again is from the Nature article that Dr. Johnson and Nakagawa have recently published. So now we take it back again. If you take Dr. Johnson's work, on preeclampsia and fructose metabolism. Again, this is just one piece. There's other things that are driving dysfunction. And I would submit to you it's flour, high volume flour foods, you know, all this excess calories. It's some of the um, poor quality fats that are driving inflammation. There's more to it than the story. But in this case, we're focusing on the fructose side. If fructose is driving preeclampsia, and preeclampsia is driving either a preterm birth or other inflammation-based problems or epigenetic problems inside the fetus, then these are the targets we need to be focusing on moving forward in study like that which Dr. Stone and her colleagues are doing. As always, prevention is key. It's a lot cheaper to prevent a disease than to treat it over a continuum. So for me, the data here is pretty clear. We need to start looking at these kinds of projects in humans moving forward on a national level to stem the tide of disease of all types. I think not just autism spectrum disorder, ADHD, other neurodiversity problems. I think this data set will over time prove to be one of the big pieces in reducing all-cause health span, mortality, morbidity issues over time. So this was a, to me... A seminal moment in this podcast where now we're starting to look at incredible data sets of prevention from a functional medicine perspective or what Dr. Pedia Atia calls medicine 3.0.
we can't be living in a world where we're just reactionary to disease. We have to go upstream and be more proactive and try and understand the reasoning behind the why. How do we upstream change the downstream risk? For me, that's everything. And I want to thank Dr. Stone and colleagues uh, when we were at the AIC in Orlando last uh, couple weeks ago when I was teaching. She and I and, and her daughter Emily and her husband Michael had amazing conversations around these stories of what they're doing. And they're doing amazing work. And I think the future looks bright. And I can't wait to work side by side with them, hopefully, on these projects in North Carolina and around the country, watching them flourish with their beautiful work and watching humans benefit from their thought processes and study and all of the above. So with that, I leave you. Thank you, as always, for being a part of this podcast. If you enjoyed it, please rate it on Apple. Send me a link at newsletter at salisburypediatrics.com if you want to say anything to me. And otherwise, just as always, hug those kids. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and or treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue and does not constitute the provider formation of a provider-patient relationship. Thank you.